Well, hello and welcome to Pocket Salon. I'm Helen Bagnall. And I'm Juliette Russell. This is the second of three podcasts looking ahead to the 2014 Transmission Prize, awarded by Salon London for the communication of big ideas. This year's prize will go to one of eight shortlisted nominees. In our first edition, we introduced you to three of the nominees, and today we'll be talking to another talented trio. First up is John McHugo. He's an Arab linguist and international lawyer whose book, A Concise History of the Arabs, has been hailed, and I'm quoting here, as thrilling and poignant, vivid, engaging and an effortless read. For me, the Iraq war was a watershed because I just could not understand how so much of the media, so much of the commentariat was sucked up behind this drive towards war once it began. And what lay behind it was this evil rhetoric of the clash of civilizations. We'll be hearing from neuropsychologist Barbara Sahakian, author of Bad Moves, and her work is all about smart drugs. You can take them to make you work harder and work smarter, but should you? And we'll introduce you to Sarah McCartney, the self-taught perfumier who wrote about fragrances for 14 years before striking out on her own. We were chatting about the smells that that could evoke memories of early sexual experiences. Now, I am allergic to latex, and there's only one way, really, to find that out. It's not good. Um, (laughs) So, for me, the smell of one of these is terrifying. So let me introduce you to John McHugo. His concise history of the Arabs spans centuries, from the dawn of Islam to the Arab Spring, and in a book not much bigger than the average novel. But he didn't set out to write a history, as he explained to Salon's Jason Caffrey. For me, the Iraq war was a watershed because I just could not understand how so much of the media, so much of the commentariat was sucked up behind this drive towards war once it began. And what lay behind it was this evil rhetoric of the clash of civilizations. At the time, I saw it so often in the media, and I really wanted to refute that. Now, the result was my book started as an attempt to analyse the clash of civilizations and point out why it was wrong. But in order to do that, I found that I had to tell the history of the Arab world and also the Arab world's relationship with the West. And so what I ended up with was this history book. And the point about the history is that it tells its own story. And I hope that by the end of the book, readers will realise why there is no clash of civilizations, but why there are dreadful, dreadful problems why we have had these horrible autocrats in Arab countries, and also why people have rallied behind what we loosely call Islamism. And what we should do is see that there is no clash of civilizations if we break it down into little things. I think there are differences we can resolve, many things we can respect, and things we can actually learn from, as well, of course, many things that Arabs desperately want from the West, if only we knew how to give it to them in the right way. It's a very optimistic appraisal. And your book now has been revised with a couple of chapters which address the Arab Spring, if we can call it that. I wonder, when you're writing those chapters, having looked back across 900, 1,000 years of Arab history, 
if you write them feeling optimistic about the direction of travel or if you feel the opposite way, perhaps? Well, the answer to that is that I am actually much more optimistic than many people are. And I am comforted by the fact that some of my Arab friends from different Arab countries, by the way, from Egypt or Syria or Jordan, are also optimistic. But I think several things it is necessary to point out. In order to understand the Arab Spring, and I'm not sure we really want to use the term now because of what's happened since then, but if you want to understand the upheavals that are going on at the moment and what led to the Arab Spring at the end of 2010... You've got to look at history. And if you look at history, you realise just what dire problems there are to be solved in Arab countries. Yes, there is much that is necessarily painful that Arab countries are likely to go through. But when you think of our own history, um, when you think of our own civil war back in the 17th century, where incidentally a very considerable proportion of the population of the British Isles died either in conflict or through famine caused by the war. Or if you think of the French Revolution and mass executions by the guillotine or the Russian Revolution or what Europe managed to produce in the 20th century in the form of two world wars, all those that were things that we had to go through. And um, we've come out on the other side. And I actually think if we look at our own record and compare it with the record of the Arab world, the Arab world hasn't actually done as badly as as we think it has. So I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was a very timely reminder of everything that Islam has offered the world. Yeah, I I found it an incredible read, um, mainly because I read it on uh, my Kindle at the same time as somebody else, and we could talk about it on every page. I was going to say that, and that's very interesting that you read it in that way, and digesting each chapter and then having a conversation about it. Each chapter, each page. Each page. (laughs) So did you feel that that helped to retain the ideas? I felt that it really helped to understand it. And it's a very interesting new way of engaging with ideas, to do them collectively with other people who are interested in the subject. Great. And John McHugo will be among eight other nominees for the presentation of the 2014 Transmission Prize when it's announced at Foils in London on February the 6th. And you can be there when the prize is awarded. The evening features QI writer Stephen Colgan and he'll be revealing the interconnectedness with his amazing way of lateral thinking of all of these big ideas. And we have Joanna Ellis from the Literary Platform and she'll be explaining how events like Salon, an increasingly important part of the way authors are communicating their ideas to an audience. So we'll be kicking off at seven o'clock on fo- at Foils and Charing Cross Road. Tickets cost £12 and you can buy them now at salon-london.com. And next nominee for the 2014 Transmission Prize wrote for the cosmetics retailer Lush for 14 years, describing the fragrances in their products before writing a novel about a problem-solving perfumier. Sarah McCartney wanted her readers to be able to sample the smells she described in her book, so she taught herself how to make them. Here's what happened when she came to Salon. I didn't think I was going to have to say this, but I don't think I've brought enough condoms for everyone. Um, (laughs) Thing is that we we were chatting about the smells that that could evoke memories of early sexual experiences. Now, um, I am allergic to latex, and there's only one way, really, (laughs) to find that out. It's not good. Um, (laughs) So, for me, you know, the smell of one of these is terrifying. 
Uh, it may have a different effect on other people. Are you ready? Right, You've got to open it up, sniff the thing. <laughs> but I did think, should I recreate the scent of condoms? And I thought, what's the point? It actually costs less to go to Superdrug and get some. So, but the sense of smell basically developed so that we could smell things that we could eat, smell things that could eat us, or smell things that we could marry. You know? Actually, we're as good at, as dogs are at smelling. It's just that we've generally got more to do, and you can just, <laughs> you know, you can set a dog on something rather than sniff your way across the field. You know, you get a police dog, it can do it for you. But a um, mate of mine from university spotted me in the Guardian waffling on about vintage perfumes. And he got in touch and he said, there's this one, there's this one that I love and I need to get hold of it. So we both got some off eBay. And Revlon Moondrops, he had smelt when he was 16, and he followed a woman through the British Library, he said, followed her around and around and around until... He just had to go up to her and say, what is it? What's your perfume? And he said, even getting some off eBay and smelling it again now was quite exciting. <laughs> so, and I've known him since he was my next-door neighbor at university. His first week at university, he was kind of kidnapped by a woman from uh, the year above. Uh, he's a very good-looking bloke. She locked him up for a week and wouldn't let him go. And he said to me, you know, well, Sarah, after that, frankly, I just gave up sex. Um, but, but still, the scent of moondrops reminded him of that time before he'd been kidnapped, and it all went horribly wrong for him. This is called Acqua di Colonia Concentrata Barberia by Alvarez Gomez of Madrid. And... Um, <laughs> But this to me, this is a lovely classic cologne, but this to me is the French pen friends exchange from Epinay sur Seine to Jarrow in a bottle. Because all the French blokes who would turn up, because Epinay sur Seine, they had a communist mayor and he'd heard of the Jarrow march. So we got twinned with Paris. Another good result. And, and, and so once a year, these exotic people would turn up, all smelling like this. So when I smelt that again, it's just like, ooh, Pascal Leger. Because <laughs> um, these things, you know, they are embedded forever, I think. Is anyone else getting Pascal Leger? Because I think he got around a bit. Uh, so, Juliet, did Sarah introduce you to any unusual perfumes? She certainly did. I'd never smelt a ringmaster before <laughs> at our circus salon at Stand and Cooling. Now, what I really loved about her sessions was she mixed science with an art mm -hmm. and it was really beautiful. And I think um, just to use your nose in that way, and I think for, me, for myself, my sense of smell is my least used sense. And it was really lovely to have, be guided through that by an expo. It was fantastic. I think our audience uh, very much agree with you. I think they really feel that their sense of smell is really underutilised. And suddenly you have a passionate expert who can really explain it to you and move you through time through smell. She's incredible. So in our first edition, we heard from David Nutt, the former drug czar who made himself unpopular with the government by pointing out the damage that booze does compared to uh, other illegal drugs like ecstasy. 
Well, our final guest in this edition is also an expert on drugs. Professor Barbara Sahakian researches cognitive enhancing drugs or smart drugs. Her book, Bad Moves, explores the ethics of smart drugs. And she gave the Salon crowd a potted guide to what they are and how they can be used. So we're focusing on uh, smart drugs tonight, but I just wanted to point out that there's other ways to uh, boost your cognition. So one of the best ways is physical exercise because... Uh, Physical exercise is good for your mood, it's good for your cognition, and of course it's good for your body. So uh, exercise has been shown to increase neurogenesis, new brain cells, um, especially in uh, important areas like the hippocampus in the brain, which is responsible for your consolidating of your memories and so forth, remembering things. And another way to uh, boost your cognition, of course, is through education, which is what you're doing tonight, so that's very good. But I work a lot with a methylphenidate. You might know it as Ritalin. It is the most common treatment in this country uh, when you're using a drug treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And what it does is it boosts these chemicals in the brain called dopamine and noradrenaline. And they're very important for just tweaking and, and, and homing in and, and really getting the best out of your uh, cognition. So they neuromodulate, as we say, cognitive function. In uh, the USA, they also use other drugs like Adderall, which is uh, amphetamine salts. Um, and uh, a more recent treatment for ADHD is, is this drug, uh, Atomoxetine. And that's uh, relatively selectively boosts a chemical in the brain called noradrenaline. And people were very interested in that drug, and we've been hearing about um, drug abuse. Um, and, and the stimulant drugs like methylphenidate and uh, Adderall have some abuse potential because they are stimulants. Whereas atomoxetine, because it doesn't affect the dopamine system in the brain, uh, has no abuse potential actually. So it's a perfectly safe drug, and that's why people have been interested in it. Now, if you've got ADHD, and I, I've worked with children and with adults with ADHD, um, obviously we use a lot of cognitive uh, techniques with children, psychological therapies. Uh, but if you do have severe ADHD, you tend to need a, a drug treatment as, as well as a, a psychosocial treatment. And then modafinil Provigil was licensed in 1997 uh, for the disorder narcolepsy, and that's um, excessive daytime sleepiness. And the way I explain it is that you, if you doze off, well, maybe you've just had too much alcohol and it's a bit late in the evening, but if I doze off while I'm speaking, that's narcolepsy. So, um, but what people have found is it's also uh, used in America, now it's licensed in America for um, sleep disturbance due to shift work because it prevents accidents during, for shift workers. So it's a very good awake and alerting agent and a lot of people use this drug for jet lag. So I'll be talking quite a lot about that. Now as you can see, it, it affects a lot of different uh, neurotransmitters. It affects dopamine and noradrenaline, which we've been talking about here, but also uh, glutamatergic mechanisms. We have this thing called executive function, and that's like higher level cognitive function. It's planning, problem solving, all those sorts of things. And so we have to use working memory as a component of any complex um, sort of psychological process that we use. So when we're doing something like planning or problem solving, we will be using a component of working memory. And so like when we're putting, like when Helen's putting together tonight, she might be, you know, looking up people's websites and thinking who would go well together. And then as she 
think so. That one, I don't know, get rid of them. They're not so interesting and maybe they don't fit in so well. And so she'll be updating what she's putting together and things like that. And I do the same when I give talks. I would be doing the same sort of thing. And that's, that's your working memory. And simple working memory is when you might look up a number in a phone book. So you might look up a number and it's 01223 and you're sort of saying it and dialing it. And then you close the book. And if you get through, it's fine. But if you don't get through, you suddenly think, what was that number? I don't remember it anymore. And that's because you threw it away, because you don't want to remember lots of things. Sometimes you only need them for a short period of time, and you don't want all that stuff just sitting there in your brain, because there won't be any uh, space for, for other thoughts, complicated thoughts. So this is working memory, uh, and, it, it, and working memory is related both to our creative IQ, our fluid intelligence, and it's also related to what we call crystallized intelligence, or IQ, which is what the waste measures. So it's a very important uh, process, working memory. So that was Barbara Sahakian on smart drugs. So Helen, do you want to tell us a little bit more where you think the future is on these smart drugs and where Barbara was taking us? I think Barbara is very clear about where you could get hold of uh, modafinil or Ritalin or other smart drugs, uh, namely the internet. But she was very clear that you shouldn't. Okay, that is very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I came away kind of thinking, well, what if I ended up going to A&E and I needed to have my legs sawn off and the surgeon was really tired? Would I be happy for him to take some smart drugs so that he was working at his optimum ability? I think I would. <laughs> and therein lies the ethical dilemma. <laughs> That's all from us for now. But please join us again for our third episode for our final podcast previewing the 2014 Transmission Prize when we'll be speaking to epigeneticist Tim Spector about how you can improve on the gene set handed to you by your grandparents and biologist Arati Prasad on how science is rewriting the rules of sex. And if you missed yesterday's podcast, which featured Olivia Lang, Lloyd Bradley and Professor David Nutt, it's still available. <laughs> <laughs> Along with tickets for the Transmission Prize um, on the 6th of February at Foils. You'll find them all at salon-london.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.